Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Mountain lions in California, in and around Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, have many challenges they must overcome to survive. The species faces a continuous onslaught of threats, from poaching, disease, and poisoning, to drought and wildland fires. But one threat tops them all a fragmented habitat that prevents this stealthy and solitary creature from safely accessing the huge territory it needs to find genetically diverse mates. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This week, the traveler's Lynn Riddick continues her conversation with Beth Pratt from the National Wildlife Federation on what needs to be done to see that mountain lion population not just survive, but grow. Through the efforts of the Save L.A. Cougars campaign, tens of millions of dollars have been raised to date to build the world's largest wildlife corridor over the 101 freeway in Liberty Canyon, west of Los Angeles. In this, part two of our two-part series, Beth outlines to Lynn more details about the crossing, which is estimated to cost between $55 and $78 million. A significant portion of the funding is coming from private donations pouring in from all over the world due to the public's increasing understanding of the benefits of wildlife corridors, both to wildlife and to humans. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge-watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. 
Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. my conversation with Beth Pratt. She's regional director for the National Wildlife Federation and leader of the Save LA Cougars campaign. The organization recently received a major $25 million grant to construct a massive wildlife corridor over US 101 west of Los Angeles. The goal is to reconnect a fragmented habitat to protect the threatened mountain lion population and other wildlife living in the Santa Monica Mountains. Beth, you've said that the survival of the species depends on one thing, connectivity, because the disconnect or fragmentation of a habitat is a huge threat to wildlife. The area around the Santa Monica Mountains is a highly fragmented landscape. What are the particular challenges of that Southern California area for the mountain lion regarding high fragmentation? You know, Southern California is a I think a magical and misunderstood place. You know, some of the stereotypes are true. There's a lot of traffic down there, um, but there's a lot of open space in the Los Angeles area in Southern California, more so than you'd expect. Um, you know, you have the Santa Monica Mountains, which run right into Los Angeles, uh, and you know, right into Griffith Park. Uh, you have, you know, if you're in Griffith Park, there's places you think you were in a Yosemite. Right? It's just there is wilderness in that park, and there's. Uh, just, you know, and it's it's also surrounded on the outskirts by open space, the Verdugos, the Simi Hills. And then you just go a little further north, you have, you know, Angeles National Forest, you have Los Padres National Forest, you know, these are, you know, a couple thousand square miles of open space that connects to the rest of the state. So, you know, I always like to stress, there's not a shortage of open space down there. Were we like more? Sure. But, you know, um, there's not a shortage. There is sustainable by the acreage habitat for mountain lions and other wildlife. But for animals like the mountain lion, which are very territory needy, what is the challenge? Well, in a word, it is our roads. It is traffic. Um you have, uh, again, the stereotype that is true about LA, the traffic and the freeways. It's hard to explain to uh, people elsewhere in the country, the LA freeway system. Um, listen, I'm from the East Coast. So I grew up driving in Boston and New York and DC. And sure, there's traffic there, but all of those cities fit in a little corner of LA. You know, LA is huge in terms of distance and has, you know, it's just more freeways <laughs> expanding out into more distance than, you know, most cities in the U.S. So it compounds the problem, uh, especially then when you add in the, the added population. So when we put these freeways in, we didn't know what we were doing. We figured, oh, there's open space south of the 101, plenty of protected habitat, right? Who, um, who would know what that would do? But as we're seeing, you know, Open space needs to be connected. Fragmentation, especially for a creature as territory needy as a mountain lion, uh, can really be the doom of populations, which is what's playing out in the Santa Monica Mountains. You have mountain lions that cannot get in to the Santa Monica Mountains to bring in the new genetics needed for a sustainable uh, population long term. And the mountain lions 
Salsa the one and one are kind of stuck there. Those that try to get out usually get hit by cars, P22 being the exception. So they're inbreeding themselves out of existence. Uh, so that's, you know, the, the fragmentation problem kind of in a nutshell. Um, they just need passage uh, across these freeways to get dates outside their family is the sort of, you know, <laughs> simple way to put it. And I, I think it's, it's just about, you know, what I love about science is we learn more. And, you know, connectivity is kind of a new thing. Um, we now know it's needed for not just mountain lions, plants need it. You need it for seed dispersal. The little guys need it. The same National Park Service research that shows the genetic decline of the mountain lions, they're seeing the same type of result from fragmentation in lizards and birds. So we now know that open space, even big swaths of open space need to be connected to work and uh, for, for ecosystem health. And that is what we're trying to solve. Uh, I'll also say it's, it's an interesting situation in the Santa Monica mountains as well. And I can't find a precedent for this. You know, we have wild, wildlife crossings are nothing new and obviously fragmentation occurs all over the country. Um, but what we did with the 101 is cut off an entire mountain range from the rest of the world. And uh, I don't, you know, I'm not really seeing that anywhere else. So that that is an interesting thing to solve, to reconnect an entire ecosystem, not just in other places where you're just trying to get animals across the road because they're getting hit by cars. You know, we're talking about potential species extinction and also a degradation of entire mountain range because of fragmentation. That's that's um, a little different than what a lot of these other wildlife crossings are trying to solve. Well, let's talk more about the $25 million grant toward building a huge wildlife corridor at Liberty Canyon over the 101 freeway west of Los Angeles. Um, tell us about the proposal and, uh, again, why this particular location? So let me get to the why. why. Why put a wildlife crossing here? You know, the National Park Service research that we've been referencing um, really raised the alarm. Uh, they, I think it, you know, it was surprising to them as well. Again, urban wildlife research was still in its infancy or at least not as uh, well known back when they started. And so, you know, they raised the alarm bells on what the problem was, right? So, okay, boy, the genetic fragmentation or the genetic decline is pretty severe. We got to do something about this. As to where, uh, this one's kind of an easy question to answer. We don't have a choice. <laughs> um, we do know, and this is where the GPS comes in, we do know wildlife are trying to cross here. Uh, again, we have over 100,000 GPS points from their study. They come up to the freeway and they turn around. Uh, we actually had a mountain lion die, get hit by a car near Liberty Canyon. You had P-64, who actually was using this long culvert, uh, he figured it out. It was really interesting. Not a sustainable wildlife crossing, but he figured it out. Um, I wouldn't go through there. Can you imagine going in this long culvert under a 10 lane freeway? I'm too claustrophobic. Um, so, you know, the animals, this, this pinch point is actually the last 1600 feet in the entire area that has protected space on both sides of the freeway. There's nowhere else we can put this. Um, that's another difference we have with 
are wildlife crossing. Um, people think like wildlife quarters and you think uh, like Path of the Pronghorn uh, in Wyoming, which I've been to, I've actually been on that crossing. You know, that crossing was connecting a thousand year plus migration route for, for pronghorn. And we don't have ungulate migrations here for the most part. We have some mule deer in the, the Sierra, but for the most part, what we are trying to fix in California is what's left, right? The, the options, the animals. Mountain lions don't migrate, they just travel. So this is sort of the last place in the area where they can cross. And uh, so it was actually kind of an easy site selection. Having said that, this crossing is driven by science and we had uh, many reviews. We had um, wildlife crossing experts come out from all over the world to actually drive up and down the 101 look at if there were any other possibilities and their conclusion and a report that was released um, a few years ago was, yep, best location for it. And an overpass is the best solution because it reconnects the ecosystem for all wildlife. So that's why Liberty Canyon. The other thing I will add, because this is really interesting to me. First, Liberty Canyon is in the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, again, a, a national park. It's a very urban park, but it's, it's still a park. Uh, and, um, What's interesting is the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, who uh, actually owns um, some of the, the, the land surrounding the crossing, they started talking about wildlife corridors in the 70s and 80s and actually had the foresight, even before we knew about crossings, but had the foresight to preserve the land on both sides of the freeway as a loose corridor. They kind of, you know, their scientist, Paul Edelman, you just got to give him a lot of credit. He was really ahead of his time. So we wouldn't even have this option if it wasn't for their foresight and saying, hmm, maybe we should have some continuous open space, uh, you know, back then. And and so now we have a corridor that we can connect and it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, wildlife corridors are certainly a timely topic right now. Um, the New York Times ran a story and you probably saw it. Um, they cited how environmentalists and transportation officials believe there's broad consensus on the benefits of animal crossings. And, you know, maybe that's because of the emotions evoked when we see a mountain lion being hit by a car or, or you know, large animals, deers or bears, just panic-stricken and darting between vehicles as they struggle to cross a busy highway. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you believe there is a consensus forming broadly? Absolutely. Uh, so my colleague at National Wildlife Federation, uh, Mike Leahy, he has a great quote in that, which is the time of wildlife crossings has come. And I, I agree with them. It's not that they haven't been around for decades and decades, especially overseas. You know, the U.S. is a little behind, but it's the public acceptance. And there does seem to be, you know, my organization is very bipartisan. We work both sides of the aisle. We um and, it, you know, there does seem to be broad consensus around these. Um, I have a few thoughts on why. One is, yes, it's the animals, right? I mean, we see roadkill all the time and most of us do react emotionally to it. I mean, there's, you know, most of us don't want to see animals getting hit by cars. So there, I agree with you, there's that emotional reaction. I think another thing that makes wildlife crossings exciting, uh, or at least, you know, why people are really supportive of them it's a real tangible solution, you know, as somebody who's worked in conservation for in, in the environment for most of my career, some of these problems we're trying to tackle are hard to 
give a concrete solution like climate change. My God, like that, that one, it's not that it's not important and I work on it, but you know, it's hard to outline. Okay. If you do X, this will be fixed. Well, getting animals across the road, you build it, they cross it. You get to look at the cute photos and videos of the animals crossing it. You've solved the problem. So there's something really tangible and satisfying for people knowing there it is, the crossing's built and it's working. So I think, you know, that's, um, that's a piece of it as well. And then I also think there's this chance we can right a great wrong. Again, I, nobody was being malicious when we put our roadways in, but now that we know the problem, there's the, the chance to do the morally right thing. And I think uh, people are, are responding to that as well. And I'd say what we found, especially around the wild, the Liberty Canyon crossing is uh, also how you talk about it. Um, you know, all the things that, scientifically using scientific language are correct and important. This is about biodiversity, you know, ensuring that it's about resiliency in the face of climate change and other challenges. Those are all true, but you know, that's how I think as environmentalists, we used to, to talk about these things for a long time. And, you know, it just doesn't resonate the same way about these mountain lions can't get dates or they're getting hit by cars. I think there's now a real shift in how we talk about these crossings to the public that has, um, you know, we, we saw that with P-22. They had been actually talking about doing something at the site for a while, but in those very scientific terms, and you need the science, but all of a sudden you get this lonely, dateless, last of his kind mountain lion trapped by traffic. And, uh, you know, every Angelino can relate to a, you know, romance prospects being dashed because of 405 traffic. Um, but yeah, this lonely mountain lion made it real for people all around the world about what these animals face in our urban areas. And that to me was the biggest game changer. And, and I think that's really translated really around the world and bringing a face to, you know, this problem in a way that, you know, all the sort of techie language in the world didn't. The Traveler is done reporting on the increasing awareness of the need of these wildlife corridors. And like you say, we're seeing more and more of them built in the U.S. and more plans to build them. And, you know, not just overpasses, but tunnels and underpasses. And I mentioned in a previous podcast um, the work happening with the Great Smoky Mountains Pigeon River Gorge Wildlife Crossing Project in North Carolina and Tennessee. And um, I also mentioned the pretty spectacular $23 million land bridge that opened this year near my home in San Antonio. And all you need to do to be convinced is to look at the video from the Parley's Canyon Wildlife Overpass yes. <laughs> near Salt Lake City. And you watch the parade of wildlife making its way across the bridge. And it's really, really interesting. And, and the Times article cites how a series of crossings in the Pinedale region of Wyoming has resulted in 90% drop in vehicle collisions with animals. Is that is that the crossing you were talking about? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you you hit on it. I mean, there's something so satisfying. And I've been to the Parley's Canyon Crossing a couple times. And and I'm about, I was actually about to visit yours this spring. I'm, but I, and I probably will be going this fall. So I'll look you up. I really do want to see the San Antonio one. It looks amazing. But yeah, there's something satisfying about watching that Parley's Canyon video or any of these. Like, you know, I've, I have visited a lot of the crossings across the U.S. And, 
we actually had wildlife crossing week as part of some of our education for our Save Valley Cougars campaign. And just seeing the video of whether it's a frog or toad crossing or wolves going over a crossing up in Washington state or the pronghorn. Um, these are amazing. They're positive. They're, they're, you know, they're hopeful. I think that, you know, they work. As you said, you look at the stats on these crossings, 80%, 95%, uh, you know, reduction in collisions. You have the Banff crossings, I think, you know, like, oh, I think they're up to like 300,000 successful crossings just with the large, you know, um, animals. Um, they work, right? It's, it's also something that works. And, and the video footage coming out of them just makes us all so inspired and hopeful. Um, yeah, there's exciting projects. And I don't like to leave out, you know, they, we have a, one of my favorite crossings is actually up uh, where I, near where I live. Uh, we have uh, the Yosemite toad. It's, it's a, a, a endemic species to the Sierra. Uh, they are under threat for a lot of reasons, but one area uh, on, it was sort of a, a forest service road. They were getting killed. It was part of their annual migration, you know, to breeding grounds. And they put in this ramp and now the toads go under it. And I just love seeing the photos coming out of the little toads walking, walking under the ramp. Uh, you have crab crossings. I love those. You have salmon being shot out of water canyons to get across barriers, right? So, you know, we tend to think of these, you know, like sort of large mammal crossings, of course, and that's what I work on. Um, but, the, you know, the little guys too, I think are, are equally as inspiring. Every wildlife crossing is both site specific, has different goals, and also can be focused on different species. And the Santa Monica Mountains, we're actually focusing, although we use mountain lions as sort of the poster child because they are at most risk of uh, extinction right now. Um, and they're cute and who doesn't love mountain lion kittens? Our crossing is actually being built to reconnect the ecosystem for almost all wildlife. I mean, frogs are going to live on it. You know, uh, you know, birds will fly over it. Uh, butterflies will, you know, uh, sort of be helped through their migration on it. So we're building it uh, with the intent of it just really being, a, you know, restoring habitat back is the best way to put it, but over a freeway. That's exciting to me. Yeah, and I don't think you mentioned that it's going to be going over 10 lanes of traffic. How much more money has the campaign raised since you got the $25 million grant? And who did you get the grant from? Did you mention that? Yeah. So, you know, what the, as you said, to, to start off, I mean, this is going to be the world's largest crossing when built. And it's not because I want it to be. I'd gladly build the world's smallest crossing, but unfortunately has to go over one of the world's biggest freeways, the 101 and an access road. It's 10 lanes of pavement and again, an access road. So this is uh, this is huge. This is not just, you know, a lot of these crossings are over four lanes of road or so with that comes a, a, a big price tag. I don't happen to think it's that expensive expensive when you compare it to other infrastructure projects. In fact, it's right in line, but it's still $87 million uh, is the at least estimated price tag. Uh, we still are getting final construction numbers. So uh, when I, you know, to, to make this happen, Caltrans, you know, uh, our Department of Transportation, they've always been very supportive, but they're like, we don't have budgets for these things, right? I, I hope in the future they do. And I think that's one of the things a lot of groups work on, including my own, both federally and at the state. How do we start incorporating these crossings into state transportation planning and into state transportation budgets? But we're not there yet. So that's where, you know, groups like mine uh, come in. We're We said, all right, we need to get this done. The mountain line's running out of time. We're going to look at getting private investment for this as well. And 
I really have to thank the Annenberg Foundation and Wallace Annenberg. Uh, they've stepped up a couple times. Uh, early on, when everybody kind of thought we were crazy, they saw the vision in this. They saw the, the worth for biodiversity and, and ensuring the mountain lion's future and put up our first, uh, you know, our first private million dollar donation back in 2016. Um, and then, yes, recently, they um, we just announced last month a $25 million challenge grant from them. Uh, so with that 25 million, we have raised 44 million to date. Wow. And then, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, to me, and that comes from everywhere, right? Uh, you know, we have a couple in Kansas who are so inspired by the project. They've given um, almost three quarters of a million. We get, you know, donations from Hong Kong and Florida. So there's something about the story of these cats sort of trying to hang on in an urban area that's really inspiring. Um, but to your question of how much we have left to go, so I'm just going to focus on construction right now. There is more to the what we are trying to do, like the research that needs funding. But for us to break ground in November, um, we are looking at with the Annenberg dollars, we need another 38 million uh, in to, to cover construction costs so that Caltrans can get going. There's no delays right now. They are finishing up blueprints and we'll have those in August, but we have to raise the remainder of the funds by the end of August to stay on track to put this out to bid and break ground this fall. So that's what I am spending all my time doing, securing the rest of the funds with my great team and the help of our partners. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to the partners. Um, you know, this is, it takes a village and we all play a certain role. Um, the five key partners that literally kind of live and breathe this day to day that are making this happen is uh, Caltrans, obviously it's their road. And again, they've been incredible. They're just like, yep, yeah, we want to do this. Just get us the money. The Resource Conservation District of the Santa Monica Mountains, who uh, assisted with the early um, sort of plans and, and early designs for the project. They also have incredible local knowledge on native habitat restoration. The Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, uh, who is the land agency that owns the land uh, on both sides of the crossing, will actually own the land on top of the crossing. Again, they, they, if they didn't preserve the land uh, on both sides, we wouldn't know. I mean, we wouldn't be able to do this. So, you know, that, that, that their open space preservation was critical. And then uh, the National Wildlife Federation, my own group, uh, we are one of the oldest and largest conservation groups. Um, we're the last, we were the last partner to come on in 2012. And we um, came on for the conservation guidance, the, you know, education, advocacy, outreach, all that. And then of course the fundraising because all the other entities are government agencies, they can't fundraise. And then last but not least and pertinent to your podcast is the National Park Service. Again, this crossing is in a national park, the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. We wouldn't know there we needed a crossing or that the mountain lions uh, were in trouble if it wasn't for the the 20 year, almost 20 year research done by the National Park Service on mountain lions and other wildlife in the area. So, and they will obviously continue to do the research. I mean, that's one of the things that's gonna be really amazing to see. We have all this data on what's wrong. We're gonna put the solution in and then we get to see how it works. So uh, I know the National Park Service is really excited about continuing their research once we get this fix in. And then that will obviously you know, lend data and guidance to other projects going in, which we're excited about as well.
Do you know if there's any money for wildlife corridors in the proposed Biden administration uh, American Jobs Infrastructure Plan, uh, or possibly how many jobs would be created? I know in the Great Smokies, they want to reconfigure aging and obsolete highway overpasses for wildlife crossings. Yeah, so uh, to your answer, yeah, one of the things my uh, the National Wildlife Federation does, again, I oversee California, but I sit on our, we have a, actually a national corridors uh, sort of working group within the Federation, and we work with other groups uh, across the country to work with the federal administration on putting wildlife crossing money in like you said, budgets, especially stimulus projects. And what the other good thing about these projects, they're infrastructure projects. They come with jobs. They come with, you know, opportunity. They, <laughs> um, so yes, there is um, money designated in a number of initiatives on the federal level, or at least uh, being lobbied for to keep in for corridor work, for crossing work, for connectivity work, which is really exciting to me. Same here on the state in California. Um, right now, our state budget's being finalized, and the um, one of the proposals that we hope makes it all the way through is $230 million to the Wildlife Conservation Board for connectivity and crossing work. So I think um, that that's exciting to me that in, in, this is playing out in other states too. The states are really seeing the worth in these projects. Uh, you know, as we spoke about before, there's a lot of broad consensus with a few exceptions um, that these are good. These are good for wildlife. Obviously they, they help wildlife not get mushed by cars, but they also help, uh, you know, preserve ecosystems and natural areas, but they're good for people. I mean, if you just look at the safety issues uh, with wildlife and people collisions, I think the the data that you know Ted Zoli's quote about eight billion dollars a year is spent in whether it be you know damages from uh, or you know medical assistance for people for, as a result of wildlife collisions, um, and that's saying nothing about the damage it does to the animal as well. So you have benefits to people at least directly with. Um, less, you know, less uh, economic damage from collisions. But I like to think of it more as a benefit in a couple ways. One, I mean, if you're just someone who doesn't care so much about the wildlife, and uh, these are, again, infrastructure projects that, you know, some of the data points to the vast economic benefits. For example, Liberty Canyon, I mean, that's an $87 million project. Most of that's going to construction jobs uh, and, and building you know, this structure and uh, Caltrans estimates, for example, like for every billion spent in transportation, 13,000 jobs are created. And a, a Florida DOT study um, found that for, for transportation projects, for every dollar invested, um, $4 of economic benefits results. So you also have this sort of straight, wonderful economic investment. And then I'll also say the, the, the last reason people should care, even if they don't love wildlife, is as we, uh, everybody knows now, uh, we are part of nature and functioning ecosystems are essential to our health. We need to be preserving biodiversity and habitat for healthy ecosystems if we don't want another pandemic. I mean, we, we are disrupting a system to the point that are making pandemics more and more likely. And obviously, you know, the next one, we may not get off as easy. So I think it, it, for me, it really hits home the connection between human health and the health of our wildlife and ecosystems, things like that. 
wildlife crossings are part of a bigger picture of we need to uh, fix these grave mistakes we made at disrupting ecological processes if we as people are going to have a future um, as well as the wildlife. This is Lynn Riddick and I'm talking California mountain lions with Beth Pratt of the National Wildlife Federation and the Save LA Cougars campaign. I'll be back with more after this short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kejimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm back with Beth Pratt of the National Wildlife Federation. Other than P22, we really haven't talked about the integration of wildlife into urban areas, and I know you are a proponent of that. Um, can you explain that school of thought? Yeah, this has been an interesting journey for me, which did start with P22. I am a parkie. I've spent most of my career, in fact, almost all of it, working with the National Park Service. I've worked in Yosemite for almost a decade as part of the, uh, it's now called the Yosemite Conservancy, but the time was the Yosemite Association. I was the, the vice president. Um, I worked for the concessionaire in Yellowstone for four years as their uh, director of sustainability. Um, and now this project is in the national park, again, the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. But as you know, Yellowstone and Yosemite are more what we think of traditional parks, these sort of remote wilderness areas, you know, that are mostly devoid of people, although I wouldn't classify Yosemite Valley as that, obviously. <laughs> um, but you know, when I was coming up in my biology training and conservation work, uh, you know, and it's been 30 years for me, the prevailing notion was 
you know, wildlife and people belong in separate spaces and never the two should meet. And, you know, we, we stick wildlife in Yosemite and we've checked the box and done our job. And that was what I thought for the longest time. Indeed, when I read the first news story about P-22, I had just moved back to California to take this job with the National Wildlife Federation and was starting out with typical conservation work, looking at, you know, what we could do in Yosemite or the Sierra and read the story of P-22, called up the National Park Service down there and said, is this true? I didn't even believe it. I'm like, how can a mountain lion be living in LA? There's just no way that's true. But when I went down there and actually toured Griffith Park, uh, I'd never been there before, even being in California for 20 years. And then hearing Jeff Sikich, the biologist, uh, you know, talk about the challenges these cats were facing. You know, I um, just had one of those life-changing moments, which I, you know, did a TED talk about, which was, you know, I'm sitting there going, oh my God, these cats shouldn't be here. There's people playing golf and running and cars and pony rides and a golf, you know, it just like, it just struck me as so inappropriate for lack of a better word. And it really hit me like, well, wait a minute, what, who am I to judge? If it's okay for that mountain lion, then, you know, what say do I have? And if it's the only way he can exist, then maybe he should be here. Maybe it's really us who are you know, the intruders. And it really set me on a journey, which turned into a book. I actually had started the book and it turned into a totally different book on these coexistence success stories and not just success stories, but how we have to share space or wildlife is not going to have a future. Uh, the number one threat to wildlife worldwide is a lack of habitat. And we're not setting aside any more Yosemite. So we, we have to find a way where wildlife can, um, can share our human spaces. And, you know, I'm not talking about a mountain lion living in everybody's backyard, but, you know, if mountain lions are passing through um, your backyard to get to other open space, then sure, why not? But, you know, it's also about building relationships to wildlife, which is also a little, con you know, has been a little controversial, although since I've started, I think it's gained more widespread acceptance. I mean, we weren't allowed to name animals or even talk in conservation field. You couldn't even talk about, you know, specific animals or individual animals or even species. It was all about large landscape connect you know, large landscape preservation. And But, you know, I think that was the, one of the biggest um, failures of environmental groups, including my own. Don't anthropomorphize. Don't let people get too close to animals. Well, then how are they going to love them? How are you going to build relationships? And we are animals. And actually, I think anthropomorphizing is fine. We now, and science is now showing us, we have a heck of a lot more in common than animals than we thought, that they do have rich emotional lives. They're individuals. Um, you know, you have uh, killer whales who have matriarchal societies and they have different dialects and languages. You know, you have elephants that mourn their dead. They even think fish may have emotions. So, you know, that separateness from us and wildlife, I think, was a really big mistake that I think is being rectified. We have to build day-to-day -day relationships with wildlife, whether it be for their preservation or for ours. So I think that is uh, about you know, less on the science side and more on if we want to protect wildlife, people have to love them and telling people they can't anthropomorphize is, um, or, or even get close to wildlife is silly. And I'll end with an antidote. It was really interesting that that TED talk I gave, uh, you know, again, I've been uh, work, worked in Yosemite for a decade, but obviously lived up, I've lived up here for 30 years. So I'm friends with 
a lot of the park staff and um, I gave my TED talk and uh, one of the park scientists came up to me afterwards, you know, was about how, hey, let's make some room for wildlife in our backyards and and it's okay if a mountain lion lives in a city. And she came up to me and said, oh my God, Beth, that talk was on everything I have spent my career trying to prevent. My God, I mean, they've done studies, you know, like wildlife is more stressed in cities and other areas. And I'm like, well, I'm more stressed in a city. I mean, who isn't, you know, but it, it's not about that. It's about wildlife needing those choices. And obviously they're surviving. Uh, they're, you know, P-22 isn't unhappy. I don't think he's sitting in Griffith Park longing to live in a Yosemite. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's more about our hangups in the wildlife. The wildlife have shown they're fine with adapting because who wouldn't? We would do it too if it's our only shot at life. So I think a lot of this is more about our preferences and less about what the wildlife needs. So, it, and it's been, I think, really inspiring and such a great development that that is catching on, not just with scientists, but with the public. Uh, and I think the pandemic was a great example of that people love, you know, they couldn't go anywhere and connecting with their backyard wildlife was something that it just gave me really joy to see how people were, were doing that as a way to get through a challenging time. Yeah, we like seeing wildlife and it's all really just a matter of knowing that we might see it in urban areas and what to do to be safe and to act sensible around wildlife, right? Yes, the dangers are really overblown. And I think that for a lot of people, a lot of it is people don't know. I mean, if you don't know mountain lion behavior in, in biology and, you know, of course you're going to be scared if you see one, but, you know, I just think learning a little bit about wildlife around you will dispel a lot of the fear and the, the, you know, I call it reading the wildlife weather, right? We learn about weather so that we know when it's going to rain. Same thing with wildlife. We should learn about the wildlife in our area so that uh, we don't automatically have to have that fear response. And, and then to me, it opens up such wondrous possibilities for these encounters. You know, you can have relationships with wildlife. Obviously, they're not pets and it's never zero risk. I mean, even ticks can kill you, right? So I, I always want to stress that it's never zero risk. But 99.999% of wildlife encounters end well for both parties. And indeed, most of them end without people ever knowing they've had a wildlife encounter. Um, there was that video that just went around in the last few months of uh, this bear was walking around a house. He sees some people. The people don't see the bear. The bear kind of backs up and waits for the people to leave. Those people didn't even know there was a bear there. You know, they go out of their way to avoid us. You know, the vast majority of wildlife is not waiting in a tree ready to pounce on us at all. So um, I just think more education around that could help us have better experiences, keep the wildlife safe, but also open us up to, there's something magical about these encounters. You know, when I've seen bears and in the wild and mountain lions and, you know, any number of animals, wolves, you know, uh, they're just such incredible soul satisfying experiences. And I want that for everybody. I don't want people to come into these situations. You know, you should come into them with respect, but I don't want them coming into them with fear because there's very little of fear. Tell us about the Save LA Cougars campaign and was that what ignited this grant for the corridor? Yeah, so the, uh, you know, I, I named the, the partners for this wildlife crossing, National Park Service, Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, 
Resource Conservation District of the Santa Monica Mountains, Caltrans, and then the National Wildlife Federation was the last um, partner to come on board in 2012. And, uh, you know, what this came down to was two things that needed to happen for this crossing. One was you needed the public support. It is a public project. Uh, it's going across a public freeway. So, of course, that is subject to environmental review and public comment. And it also needed money. Caltrans was like, yep, we'll do it, but we need the money. So the other partners I named, uh, they are all government agencies and can't advocate and nor can they fundraise. So that is the role my organization and myself and my team fulfill was both getting the public support through our um, Save LA Cougars campaign um, and getting the funding. And we took a different approach. I mean, and I'll, I'll tell you, even my own organization at first was like, you're running around with a cutout of a mountain lion and talking about finding mountain lion dates. I mean, my some of the scientists uh, on our staff uh, were, you know, thought it was, you know, a heresy. And I, I some of them probably still do. <laughs> but, um, but it's the public engagement and getting people excited about this in a way that was less about the science, which of course we need, and more about wanting to preserve something that they loved. And that's, I think, where P22 came in. So yes, the Save LA Cougars campaign is, um, is what is funding this. And uh, obviously all the partners help with support, but we, um, that is what is bringing in a, a lot of the dollars in the Annenberg uh, is one of the biggest is I'll tell you, it's the biggest donation to our organization in its history. Uh, and we've been around since uh, 1936, I think. Um, but uh, obviously it was a, a huge boost to the campaign and got us to over 50% funded, which is the criteria for a lot of other organizations to give. So, so yeah, that's been really, uh, it has taken over my job here. I mean, in, in, Technically, as the regional executive director for California for the National Wildlife Federation, I technically oversee a lot of conservation work, but really this has become such a, a monumental project. I, I've been spending almost all my time on it. So it's been with our team getting the public support, which it passed environmental review with flying covers and passed public comment. And now it's it's getting the rest of the funding in. And yes, the Annenberg, I, I cannot thank the Annenberg Foundation enough for just really being a leader in um, getting us really close to the finish line. Well, Beth Pratt, thank you for your time. Your enthusiasm is infectious. And <laughs> <laughs> I hope the Mountain Lion fan base there continues to grow. Um, and I hope the Save LA Cougars campaign reaches its goal and that crossing gets built and we'll keep our eye on the progress. And I'll see you in San Antonio. I'll give you a personal tour of our land. I will love it. I'm coming and you have an invite to groundbreaking. Listen, it's uh, as my esteemed colleague, Senator Fran Pabli says, it is not if anymore, it is when. So uh, you have an invite to the groundbreaking this fall as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. In the weeks ahead, we'll be visiting Mammoth Cave National Park and learning more about the historic structures at Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area and how many can be saved. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.